Ron sure knows how to put the pressure on. You know, they say if you don't use it, you lose it. And I haven't taught a class in quite a while, and I feel like I've lost it. Also, I've had uh, cold for about a week and a half or two, and I lost my voice entirely for a couple of days. So I don't know how long I'll last, but uh, we'll start. Glad to have you with us tonight. It's a bad night, and this shows your spirituality for sure. The Apostle Paul talks a lot about the spirit and the body, about the flesh and the spirit, and about a continuous war that goes on in a Christian's life every day, every minute of his life between the body and the spirit. What is that body? He has a list of uh, sins of the flesh in Galatians. What is that flesh that he's talking about? Is it skin and bone and muscle and blood of the body? Or what is that flesh and what are those sins? We'll talk about all of those a little bit tonight. If you have your Bibles and would like to turn there, we're going to study first from Galatians chapter 5, beginning with verse 13. I'll read through verse 26, will be the basis for our lesson tonight. I'll be reading from the King James Version. For brethren, you have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion of the flesh. But by love serve one another, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye not be consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things you would. But if ye be led of the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, contentions, Jealousies, wrath, strife, sedition, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have told, also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another and envying one another. 
We live in a sinful world. And we realize this is true because it comes to us from at least three different directions. First of all, there are our own personal experiences. No matter where we may choose to live nor in what culture we choose to make our home, we are constantly aware of pressure upon us to do what we know is not right in the eyes of a holy God. Sometimes we are pressured to do wrong, and it gains a momentary victory. And even though it is only for a brief time, we realize that we do need divine help. We can't make it by ourselves to overcome what Paul calls the desires of the flesh. Secondly, there's the tragic evidence of sin all over the universe. With killing so widespread, it seems the world has become a vast graveyard. We turn on the local TV news, and the first thing we hear usually goes something like this. Three people were killed in Chattanooga last night. African dictators found to be guilty of the most atrocious crimes inflicted on those who just disagree with them. In the great Nazi Holocaust, six million Jews were murdered. You realize that is 12 times the population of greater Chattanooga? Six million people were killed. In South America, Mexico, and the USA, drug traffic escalates in spite of all the police can do. There are over a half a million abortions performed in the United States each year. And thirdly, we are made aware of the greatness and enormity of sin in the world when Scripture tells us the sad truth that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 The Apostle Paul also states in the same chapter verses 9 through 12, when he says, What then? Are we better than they? No, and no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Jew, Gentile, men everywhere are sinners. And the great problem with that is that sin separates man from God. God cannot sin and God will not allow sin. But your iniquities have separated you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. Isaiah 59, 2. What a gloomy picture this paints for anyone who is caught up in sin. Not only would the future look bleak, but there really is no future. But that's not the entire picture of the world. That would only be true if we left God out of the picture. A long time ago, actually before time began, 
God devised a most glorious plan for man. He made an offer to mankind that could only be devised in heaven. No wonder Paul exclaimed, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man, the heart of man conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10. We have the message of good news, the gospel, which originated with God himself. The future of mankind seemed hapless and hopeless, having sold themselves unto sin. It seemed that there was no way out. Then came this thrilling declaration from heaven. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2, 2. Exactly what is the meaning of the word propitiation? It's, first of all, hard to pronounce. And uh, a lot of people apparently don't know the meaning, but the word propitiation to the pagan not the Christian, but to the pagan, meant to pacify an offended person, especially to satisfy angry gods with gifts and sacrifices and bribes. However, we as Christians have nothing that we can offer God from ourselves that would take away our sin. So the meaning of the word is radically changed when it comes into the New Testament. God took the initiative and offers to us what we could not achieve for ourselves, either by works of merit, doing good things, or personal goodness, being as good as we possibly can. We can do all the work we possibly can in the kingdom. We can be as good as we can but we still do not merit salvation through Jesus Christ, which is found in the gospel. One writer put it this way, There is no doubt that men attempted to appease an angry deity with their gifts, but the appeasement of the Christian is quite different, not only in the character of the divine anger, but in the means by which it is appeased. It is an appeasement of the wrath of God through the gift of God. The initiative is not taken by man, but by God himself, caused by sheer unmerited love for mankind. The Bible calls it grace. God's wrath is not prevented by any external gift but by his own giving of self to die the death of a sinner. This is the means he himself devised by which to turn away wrath. The Christians in Galatia were rejoicing in this so-called free appeasement because they appreciated what the Apostle John meant when he wrote to another group of Christians in 1 John 4.10. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son 
to be the propitiation for our sins. <clears throat> the big question in our lesson then is this. When talk, Paul talks about the works of the flesh, what does the word flesh pertain to in these verses? First of all, it definitely does not mean what we do with our physical bodies. The works of the flesh is not what we do with our physical bodies. That it involves the bodies to a great degree is true, but there's so much more to it than that. When the New Testament was being written, the Holy Spirit guided the writers in their choice of words. The Apostle Paul uses the term body in at least three different ways in his writings. Firstly, he simply means the physical body of flesh, which every man possesses. <coughs> Pardon me. Secondly, he speaks of the body in a way which implies the imperfection and dangers of the body. Paul states <coughs> in Romans 6, 6, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And also in Romans 8:10, And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. The body is dead because of sin. This is the imperfect, sinful, fleshly body we have. Thirdly, in spite of these dangers of the body, he explains that the body can be, first of all, redeemed. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of the body. Romans 8.23 The body also is transformed, can be transformed. Who shall change our vile body <clears throat> that it may be fashioned like unto its glorious body according to the working whereby <clears throat> he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Philippians 3.21 the body is to be offered as a living sacrifice. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Romans 12:1. And with it and in it, man can glorify God. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, and in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians 6.20 For the Christian, the body, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? Paul stated in 1 Corinthians 6.19 so it seems quite clear that the Apostle Paul believes that the body is not within itself essentially evil. 
In its nature, it will die, but it has tremendous potentialities for good or for evil, according as it is either dominated by sin or dedicated to God. But the body itself is quite neutral. What if I were to come up to you out in the vestibule and start reaching my arm out to you to shake your hand? Instead of my arm shaking your hand, it clenched its fish, fist and popped you in the mouth. And I started apologizing. Uh, I, I couldn't help that. I didn't know that was going to happen. I apologize when you say, what are you talking about? You know that that arm can't do that itself. You don't know what's going on. And, and that's true. The flesh cannot do anything with it itself. So the flesh itself is not to be condemned. And the flesh itself, in most cases, is not what the Apostle Paul is talking about. The body does not control itself. It is only prompted to take action from somewhere else. The point is that something controls what the flesh does. If it is not the fleshly body, then what does the word flesh refer to? It is a word which describes the fundamental experiences which we all have in life. It may be what we call human nature. Experiences in the lives of most men Meaning, being in a state of nature, human nature means being in a state of nature without spiritual enlightenment. Now, all of us have had spiritual enlightenment, but each one of us also has a human body, which has natural tendencies. And that's the flesh that the Apostle Paul is talking about when he talks about the worst, the worst, sins of the flesh, the works of the flesh. It is what we cause our flesh to do, which is disobedient to God. <coughs> As I stated before, <coughs> let me try something. Paul says there's a continuous warfare going on between the flesh and the spirit. <clears throat> As we read in the beginning of our lesson, Paul said, This I say then, <clears throat> Walk in the spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to the other, so that you cannot do the things you would. We all <coughs> experience this battle, especially not being able to always do what we would like to do. <coughs> Another way we know that the word flesh does not mean the human body is found in Paul's list of sins 
<coughs> pardon me. <coughs> When included in Paul's list of sins, some, <coughs> well, I'm going to make it or not, belong only to the mind. I don't know if that'll help, but we'll see. Thank you. Some of these sins of the flesh belong only to the mind. Jealousies, flesh cannot be jealous. <coughs> Hatred, flesh can't hate. Anger, <coughs> hmm. that doesn't belong to the flesh either. Paul points out that the list is not exhaustive because he ends the list by saying, and such like. But those that are included seem to belong to four realms, sex, religion, society, and drink. Sexual sins that are listed are immorality, impurity, and licentiousness. Religious sins are idolatry and sorcery. Social sins are enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissension, and envy which indicate the breakdown of relationships between one another. And then last of all is carousing. That means emptying the cup, having drunken parties going over the top. To this terrible list, Paul now adds a solemn warning, and he says, I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5.21 The phrase, do such things, actually refers to an habitual practice that is continually doing these things. Since each one of us is weak, we're, we're going to slip every once in a while. But when we do these things, we confess them and repent of them to do them no more. And that is not a sin that we will be held accountable for in judgment because God has promised to forgive those sins. But if we continually practice these things, then we shall not inherit the kingdom of God. It is also evident that the word flesh is not the body because man can glorify God in the body. Glorify, uh, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians 6.20 Which he can't do with the flesh because the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can it be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God, meaning the habitual practice of these sins of the flesh that Paul has listed. Paul reminds us in Galatians 5.24, and they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and its lusts. 
It is very significant that Paul used the word crucified. Crucifixion, the death by crucifixion, is slow and agonizing. It never happens suddenly. God says to to Christians to put to death the flesh, that is, the natural desires of a person to commit sin, even though it might be a slow and painful process of getting that done, it, the rewards are well worth it. And depending upon our human nature, a lot of it depends on how we were raised. Some of us were raised in the church. We were raised to do what was right. Others were raised maybe in broken homes or in sinful homes or in alcoholic homes. And they experience different things and their human nature is different. And sometimes a person has a much more difficult time of maturing as a Christian and growing out of these sexual sins. And we must understand that and be understanding of that. We don't have time in this lesson to examine each sin in the list, but uh, here are a few. He lists immorality as a fleshly sin. All kinds of sexual promiscuity are included in this heading. It has been said that chastity was one of the great virtues that Christianity brought to the world. And this is quite understandable when one considers that prostitution by both male and female was a holy calling in the eyes of the pagan world back in Bible times. The temple of Aphrodite in Corinth boasted a thousand prostitutes who went out into the city streets each night to sell their bodies in the name of religion. Remember that this was considered to be a righteous act. And when we understand that religion and immorality went hand in hand, think about how difficult it would have been for those new Christians in Galatia to comprehend this new teaching that this is sin. It's not religion. Demosthenes, a Greek statesman who lived about 300 B.C., wrote, We keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for the day-to-day needs of the body, but we have wives in order to produce children legitimately and to have a trustworthy guardian in our homes. Is the situation much better today? Except for being done in the name of religion, sexual immorality is much the same. Houses of prostitution are now legal in some states and have been for some time. Have you searched for a Reader's Digest in a magazine rack at the drugstore lately? Most of what you see is scantily dressed girls in all their glory. That's what most of magazines are. The Holy Spirit tells us in the most unmistakable terms, have nothing to do with such things, for those who practice them have no place in the kingdom of God. Most of us say that pornography will 
never be a part of my life. But remember, it has overcome some well-known, well-thought-of preachers, ministers in the brotherhood. Let us all be careful in our battle with the flesh that this does not creep into our lives. Next one we want to look at is idolatry. Can we be guilty, guilty of idolatry today? The Bible says we can. Colossians 3, 5 states, Covetousness is idolatry. How we sometimes smile at the thought of ancient tribes bowing down to a carved god made of wood or stone, which Jeremiah told them and us that it cannot move, it cannot speak, and cannot hear, therefore should not even be considered, much less worshipped. But what about 20th century idolatry, where men have sometimes been driven to take the life of another person because they coveted what was in his wallet or the woman that he had as a wife? The action may be different, but the sin is just as real and just as wrong. It's idolatry. Professor Barclay, a Scottish theologian of 1700s, makes a thought-provoking observation about this. There is a grim fact about the works of the flesh. Without exception, every one of them is a perversion of something which is in itself good. Immorality, impurity, licentiousness, or perversions of the sexual instinct, which is in itself a lovely thing and a part of true love in our lives. Idolatry is a perversion of worship. Envy, jealousy, and strife are perversions of that noble desire and ambition to do well in life, to get ahead and have greater success in life. Enmity and anger are perversions of that righteous indignation the Bible talks about, without which we have no passion for goodness. If we didn't get mad at the world because it sins every once in a while, get mad at the sins they were, then we don't have much passion as a Christian. Drunkenness and carousing are the perversion of the happy joy of social fellowship. Every one of the works of the flesh listed in this passage of Scripture are every... They features of the world and the cultures in which we live. Paul certainly had it right when he stated, now the works of the flesh are evident. The answer is to be found in the purifying gospel through the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel elevates and dignifies man. It gives him purpose to life, sure hope, for eternity. The Christian has strengthening factors at work in his life with our Lord Jesus dwelling in our hearts by faith. 
and the Spirit teaching us by the Word to overcome these works of flesh. The man of God will crucify the things of the flesh and will live and walk by the Spirit to that greater glory which awaits us in our heavenly home. Again, Galatians five sixteen through 18. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. May the Lord help us each day as we struggle fighting that battle that is in every one of our lives. The flesh is the human instinct of mankind. The spirit is that spiritual effect that the Word of God has on a soul. The appreciation of showing the love to Christ who was willing to give himself for sinful mankind. It blows my mind when I think about how terrible this world is for a man like Jesus, even though he's God, to love us so much, even though we are his creation. For God to love us so much that he would give his only begotten son that we might live with him someday. May the Lord give us all strength to do that in our lives. Thank you. just as I expected. Uh, I, I have only one thing to say. When I grow up, I want to be like Joe. Thank you so much, Joe, and we appreciate your dedication and love for the truth and your overpowering ability to make it so simple and straightforward. It's appropriate in every service of the church, including a Bible study, to have what we call the offer uh, to have someone make uh, it known that they would request the prayers of the congregation for help in their life, whatever the reason might be. I think every one of us here have obeyed the gospel, so you know what the gospel plan is. You know that we're all human, we're all capable of sinning, and not only capable, we do. Now, most of those I know uh, can be repented of privately pray to God, and that's the appropriate thing to do. But if you have a need to come forth and ask for the prayers of the congregation, please do so as we stand and sing. <laughs>